All right. Well, good morning. Um, I most Sundays get to church a lot earlier than my family, and so it was just an honor this morning for the the 9 a.m. My my son hopped in the car with me, and we we drove over here together. And um, we're in the car, and he asks me. He says, "Daddy, can I read your Bible?" I was like, "Yeah, absolutely. You can read your Bible. You can read my Bible." And so I hand him my my Bible, and and. Uh, in the morning, I had kind of like just prepped him, like, hey, we're going to be at a different church this morning. We're going to be um, at Cross of Grace. And so I showed him a video of, of the church service from last week. And, and he saw this, this video, and he's thinking about this and processing this as we drive. And so as he's reading the Bible, and he says, Daddy, um, when we get to church, I'm going to go on their stage. And I said, oh, okay. Um, well, I don't know if that's allowed there, but what are you going to, are you going to preach the sermon this morning? And he says, yes, I'm going to preach the sermon. So he, I just continued to ask. I was like, okay, so what are you going to preach about this morning? And, and he says, God and his sheep. I'm like, okay, this is good. This is, this is a profound sermon already. I mean, we're, we're, we're three minutes into this car ride, and I am already getting preached to by my two-year-old. And so I just continued asking. I was like, oh, man, so what about God and his sheep? He goes, well, they're going on a walk. They're going to go on a walk to a restaurant to get ice cream. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is Psalm 23. He is paraphrasing Psalm 23. Like I was like, man, I need to open the message translation, make sure that's not the, oh no, it's not Eugene Peterson. Okay. This is just Psalm 23 from my son's mouth. And so as we're, we're driving, I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. Like My son might actually preach the sermon at Cross of Grace this morning. And then he goes, and God is a dog. And I was like, oh, well, there we go. Uh, that's heresy, and so you're stuck with me today, um, which is, man, such an honor. Um, I just, I did this in the first service, but I get the honor to do it again. Like, I got to brag on your pastor. Uh, I met your pastor a few years ago for the first time uh, at the beginning of the the pandemic, and, and we sat, you know, like, 10 feet away from each other just to make sure we had a great conversation in this building. And I got to see this church and I got to see what God's doing in this church. But most importantly, what I got to hear was the heart of your pastor. Uh, and so I want to take every opportunity I can to do this. Um, your pastor loves you dearly. If there was anything I took away from that conversation, it wasn't all the things that this church is doing to make things work. It was how much he loved you. And that to me, like, to hear that from a pastor's heart was so encouraging because that's unfortunately not what I often hear when I connect with pastors. And so to be able to be with a pastor who loved his people who as I spent time with him, I was able to see that he would die for his people. He would bleed for his people because Christ has died for and bled for his people. It was such an encouraging thing for, for me. I looked at, at your pastor and I knew in that moment right there, this is a guy. This is a guy that I want to be connected to for the rest of my ministry here in El Paso. As long as the Lord gives me here. I want to be connected to him. I want to be connected to this church. And, and so I just want to say for a variety of reasons that maybe not many of you know about, thank you for who you have been to me as a church. Um, you have encouraged me. You have sent. You have prayed for. You have um, blessed me in so many ways uh, 
And I just want to say thank you. Um, I feel like this morning I'm getting an opportunity, if anything, just to say thank you for all that you have done for me, for my family, and for our church uh, at Jesus Chapel. Um, I am a disciple of Jesus, first and foremost. Uh, I, I don't want to make any uh, claims and daring claims about who I am other than that. That's what I bring is I am a disciple of Jesus. I am just desiring to look more and more like him. I am a husband to my beautiful wife, Julie, who uh, is not able to be here at this service because we have two little kids, um, one of them a two-year-old, our, our son, Emmerich, and then our month-old daughter, uh, Amora. And I am, as much as I possibly can, trying to just love them and allow that to overflow into the rest of my life. Um, I'm a member of a covenant community called Jesus Chapel on the west side of this city, and I get the pleasure of serving them as their lead pastor. Uh, I'm a young pastor, which means that they are so gracious to put up with all of the mistakes that I will make, and uh, I am just blessed that they have allowed me to serve in that church, and I'm blessed that you all have allowed me the opportunity to preach the word to you this morning. Before we get into the word today, I think it's important that you know a little bit about where I'm coming from. Um, I am, I'm pretty convicted about a few things. The Lord has really built some convictions in my heart over the last few years, and, and one of them uh, that, that I have been just deeply convicted by is that we do not change as people or become... Uh, Renewed. We don't see gospel renewal in our city by adding more religious activity to our lives. That's not how we change. That's, that's not how we become more like Christ. It's not by doing more things. The way that we change, the way that we see gospel renewal in our lives and in our city is by beholding Jesus. A uh, theologian who I can't remember says it, uh, we become what we behold. What we set our eyes on, what we set our affections on will shape and will form us. We change and become transformed in the image of Christ by seeing him. And so today, my hope is that we would build off of that theme, that, that we change, we become renewed by the gospel by exposing ourselves to the gospel over and over again. Multiple exposures to who Jesus is over and over and over and over again. That's how we see gospel renewal in our lives in our city. And, I, and so what we're going to do this morning is we are just going to do that. We are going to see Jesus uh, what, I, what I'm going to root my text in is Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and then we're going to do like a 30,000-foot flyover just to kind of get an idea of Jesus with a bigger picture in mind. And so this morning, um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get to Hebrews 1, and as, as you're getting there, um, this year has been a uniquely challenging year for me. So... I have two young kids. Um, I started out the beginning of the year, uh, the end of the year, beginning of the year, pretty sick. I got knocked out for like eight to nine days, just like couldn't get out of bed uh, at the end of last year, beginning of this year. And 
when I came back to work, I, I felt like I was just behind from the moment I got back to the office. And I feel like that's kind of been the perpetual state of my year is like playing catch up. And so it's just been one of those like really difficult years. I've got kids that refuse to sleep um, like John does. They're in my bed at 1.30 every night. The other, two nights ago, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but it's funny. Two nights ago, my son has gotten up. He's gone out into the living room and I walked out. It's Friday night and so Saturday mornings we, we eat pancakes and we watch TV. And I walk out and he just goes, Daddy, it's time to watch a movie. I'm like, it's 1.30 in the morning. It's not time to watch a movie. Get in bed. And so... Um, why did I say that? Uh, little insight into my home life. That's the challenging year that I've had, 1.30 a.m. wake-ups. And so it's just been one of those years where everything feels a little bit more difficult. I'm not sure if you've ever had one of those years. Um, let me ask another question. How many of you have ever felt like time with the Lord is difficult by a show of hands? Come on, Yeah. You can raise them up high. Nobody, this is not embarrassing. That's like getting into the word becomes challenging and it becomes hard. Being with the Lord is difficult for me this year. Like it's just been difficult. It's been hard. Um, I'm in the word often and it can feel academic. Uh, at times it can feel apathetic. It's been a difficult, uh, a struggle of a year in that sense. And so maybe um, you have a misconception about pastors. Maybe you think that we just wake up and we float out to our Bibles by coffee that's been prepared by angels, but that's just not the case. Like, it's been uh, effort to, to, to be there and to be in that space. And, and, and as I've made that effort, here's what's happened. What feels like Nothing. There have been times where I have made the effort, uh, you know, with young kids to, to, to be in the Word for me. It's waking up at 4.30, and so I'm out there, I've got my coffee, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just exhausted. <laughs> feel like I have nothing to give, and that I'm not getting anything. If somebody were to walk in my office and they were to tell me this, I would probably do a pastoral diagnosis. I would say, all right, um, is there unrepentant sin in your life? Like, Man, are there just areas where you are like habitually sinning and you have decided not to give that over to the Lord? You haven't brought that into confession in community. You've just decided that you're okay with that. Uh, no, that's not what's going on. Okay, so that's not what's going on. Am I making time for God. Like, are you actually giving time to God? It's one thing to say that I, I can't get into the Word, and then it's like, well, you're waking up five minutes before you have to go to work. Like, that's probably a really difficult thing to do, or you're not, you know, when you're on your media devices and your phone and Netflix until the second you go to bed. Like, this is probably going to be really hard to hear what the Lord is saying through His Word if you're not actually giving Him time. I know, I'm doing that. I've, I've made the time. I've, I've tried to be in the Word every day as much as I can. And then I'd ask, all right, is there unforgiveness in your heart towards a brother or sister? Is there anyone in the body of Christ or anyone outside of the body of Christ that you are just harboring resentment towards? It's like, well, no, I'm not, I'm not that. I try to keep a really short record of wrongs. I try to make sure that I am connecting with uh, the body regularly. I try to make sure that I am um, just asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness as often as I possibly can. And, and if, so, if somebody says no to all of those questions, I have really good news for them and I have really bad news for them. 
the really good news is that God is doing something in their life right now that they just can't see. The really bad news is that it may feel like he is distant and he is using that to teach us something about ourselves. And he is using that to shore up our faith. One of my favorite theologians, John Calvin, says, faith necessitates doubt. Why? Because there are moments in our life where we feel as if God is not there. And the proper response for us is not to run the opposite direction, but to lean in to who Jesus is. This is a hard thing for us, right? Like, we all believe that God still speaks to his people. Like, we believe that he speaks to his people today, maybe not as authoritatively as he does in Scripture, but we believe that God speaks to his people. We believe that he's still speaking today. We believe that he is still active in the world today. So what do we do when we feel like God is not there? What do we do when we feel like God is not speaking? Maybe this is you today, and maybe it's not, and if it's not, that's okay. There will be a day where this might be you. What do we do in moments when we no longer seem to be hearing from God? What do we do when we've been posturing ourselves to be with Him, when we've been confessing sin, when we've been walking and pursuing unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we still are not feeling, hearing, or seeing Him? What? do we do? Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 3. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to have it in front of you throughout this sermon. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. Father, be with us this morning. Speak to us through your Son and make that word real to us through your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. A little bit of context for the book of Hebrews that I think is is helpful for us this morning. The, The first is this. We know almost nothing about the church that this is written to. We don't know really where they are. We don't know the constitution or the makeup of this church. We don't have an idea of who's pastoring it. We don't even know who really is writing this letter. In fact, when we come to the letter of Hebrews, here's what we have. A lot of questions. A lot of questions, which I think is intentional. But... Here's what we do know about that church that that, that we can really grasp, that this is a suffering church. It is a church that is asking the question, where is God? In fact, if we were to read through the book of Hebrews, we would know uh, later on in the book that this 
church has suffered almost to the point of death, right? They've been suffering, but they have not suffered to the point of shedding their blood is the words that the author to the Hebrews church uses. So this is a suffering church. It's a hurting church. It's becoming really uncomfortable to be a Christian in their society, which that does not sound familiar at all. Um, They have started to realize that the way that they look at the world is different than the way that other people look at the world And they're starting to feel that. They're starting to feel that economically. They're starting to feel that socially. And soon they will start to feel that physically. And so the writer of Hebrews comes to this church that is asking the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in our suffering? Where is God in our difficulties? Where is God in our pain? You and I might find ourselves as well in moments like that where we are asking that question, where is God in this? Where is God in my life right now? Where is he? I can't seem to see him. Everything I I see is not him. So what happens when we don't know where God is? Well, oftentimes we will scramble for solutions. In our day and age of endless media, we will self-medicate with the voices that speak pretty clearly to us. We'll, we'll go to our favorite media streams, whether that's our phones or our social media or Netflix or any other type of news media that you prefer. We, we seem to go to these voices because they give us a, a, a reason for living, a thought for life, and we lean into those voices. We self-medicate with them because they drown out the silence that, we, that is our questioning of where God is. And, and that self-medication, it works for a time. We can distract ourselves from that question for a time. We maybe feel a little bit better, maybe even stay busy enough to forget, but inevitably those other voices will always leave us wanting more. Uh, Maybe you're feeling distant from God and you haven't decided to to self-medicate with media, but you've thought, if I can just have a spiritual experience, like if I can just have that mountaintop Christianity moment, then, you know, then I would be able to continue in my faith. If I could have one of those moments where the Lord really, you know, meets me with a word or, you know, maybe somebody just gives me like prophecy for the next five years of my life and I could know yes or no on various decisions I'm trying to make. If I could just get a special revelation, then I would know I'm secure. Then I would know that God's here. Then I would know that God loves me. This is, this is what's happening in this church. It is a church that is seeking to answer the question of where is God with other voices. If we were to read through the book, we would notice that even just directly after our passage that they have begun to self-medicate with angel worship because it seems like there's voices there that maybe seem more clear or prevalent for them. Uh, Further on down in the book, we would learn that they've uh, moved past the gospel and gone back to some of the Jewish rites and rituals that that were required in order for uh, to be a part of the people of God in the Old Testament. And so they've started maybe leaning too far into circumcision. They've started maybe leaning too far into other... um, belief systems that would discount the gospel because they seem to be more prevalent, more clear words for them. And the author 
writes to this church, helping them to better understand their situation and their suffering with the essential, the message of Hebrews, which is this, that Jesus is God's word to you. Jesus is God's message to you. Jesus is better than any other possible word. Jesus is the sure and steady anchor for your soul. Here's what the author of Hebrews assumes when he comes to this situation with this people in this church. He assumes that their soul will naturally drift away from God. The language that he's using of anchor implies that there is a boat and that that boat will move away from the intended location if it is not tethered by something. And so the author of the book of Hebrews needs them to know that the way that they stay close to God is not, is not rowing as hard as they can. It's through an anchor. And that anchor is Jesus. There is an assumption that we as a people will drift away from God and the solution that God gives is Jesus. He gives us an anchor in Jesus Christ in the moments when we feel as if God is not speaking. We look to Jesus. So the author, in the very beginning of this book, reintroduces them to Jesus. He reintroduces his readers to Jesus. Look at uh, verse 1 and 2 for me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So here's what the author is saying. God used to speak through prophets. Now, what's happening in the prophets is the prophets are actually prophesying Christ. Like if we were to read the Old Testament, what the Old Testament is doing is it is proclaiming who Jesus is. It's, it's pointing forward to Jesus. From Genesis all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, that's what it's doing. It's, it's pointing forward to humanity's need for a Savior. And, and so what the author here is saying is back then, it was hard to see the picture. There were various ways... Uh, that God spoke through the prophets, but now, now in these last days, he has spoken through his son. He has spoken through his son. Now the picture is not unclear anymore. It's clear. It's Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken through Jesus. So how has God spoken through Jesus? Well, I think there's, there's two ways that we see in this text that God has spoken through Jesus. The first is through his eternal inheritance, and the second is through his identity and his work. So let's look at that first one, the, the, the first, through his eternal inheritance. Read with me the rest of verse 2. Um, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Okay, so God, God the Father creates by God the Son. Everything, literally everything has been created by God, through God, 
and for God. I love that we read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 earlier uh, at the service because that right there, those, those words tell us that all things have been created through God. All things have been created by God. All things have been created for God. God speaks through the Son who is the end point of all things. This is what this means. All things, not some things, not only the things that we find in the church, all things find their purpose in Christ. So when this text says he's the heir of all things, the author is telling us that in Jesus we see the point of it all. We see the point of all of it. We see the reason for everything, not just why things were created, but the way in which God is redeeming and reconciling all things to himself. My my friends, uh, there are beautiful truths in Scripture about individual and personal salvation. That's not what this text is talking about right here. What this text is talking about right here is God's cosmic reconciliation plan. This is bigger than us. Isn't that so good to know? Like, it, Sinclair Ferguson says, uh, it's not about us. It's about him. And it's only about us because it's about him. Like, this text is giving us an insight into what God is doing in all of the world. But lest we think we're unimportant, we got to keep reading. Uh, We understand the world rightly when we see God speaking in and through His Son. There is, there is no way to understand the world in any other way outside of through the lenses of Christ. God speaking in and through his son is how you and I as believers make sense of it all. That's how we make sense of the world. And so in this idea of Christ being the heir of all things, here, here's what we're seeing. What we're seeing in this text is that no matter how pointless or meaningless you think your life is, it's not. It's not. If Christ is the heir of all things, if all things are part of his eternal inheritance, then then your life culminates in being a part of Christ's inheritance. Like, your life has meaning and value and purpose because it's caught up in God's story. You carry Christ. Oh, friends, please hear me here. You carry Christ as someone who is part of God's story. You carry Christ as someone who is part of Christ's eternal inheritance. It was literally through Jesus, through him that you were created, and it is for him that you were created. Your life has meaning and value and purpose because of that fact right there. So many voices in this world make it seem like you just have no value whatsoever. And this text is confronting those lies with the truth that your life is part of Christ's inheritance which means that everything you do, there's not a single moment in your life, (laughs) no matter how pointless or meaningless you think it is, that is pointless or meaningless to God. Like that, 
Some of us are just stuck because we believe that our life has no value. And we just need to combat that lie right here with recognizing it's part of Christ's inheritance. It has value, my friends. Then he moves on. He goes on. He, so far, what he's been doing is he's been talking about Christ's work before creation or who Christ is before creation. And now he's going to continue that idea and then he's going to shift that idea. So in verse 3, he begins with, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He, he, he moves from, from Christ's eternal inheritance into who the Son is and, and what his work is. The first thing we see is that he images God perfectly. This is not, uh, my dad was in town for the last week. This is not, my dad and I just took a picture together and you kind of look at it and you see the resemblance a little bit. You're like, yeah, I can kind of see how that guy is, that guy's dad or that guy's that guy's son. Like that's, that's not what this is talking about. It's not resemblance. It's perfect image. Exact imprint. Exact When we see Jesus, we see most clearly God's glory on display and God's image as it was intended to be seen. Here's what this means. The fullness of God's plan for the world and creation is found in the mystery of the incarnation. In Jesus, the word made flesh, God's wisdom and knowledge is fully revealed. When we look to Jesus, we see the exact representation of God's character, his righteousness, his love, his power, and his justice. Whatever God has promised, whatever blessing God has promised, whatever God has, whatever God is, all of it wrapped up in Christ. All of it. When we look to Christ, as we see him in Scripture and we hear him preached, we can know what God is like. We can know what God is like and we can begin to understand his heart for us. We can begin to understand who he is. We can begin to understand his love for his people when we look and we see Jesus. Because he images God perfectly. When we see Jesus, we see God the text moves on to, to say that he has been sustaining all things. When we see Jesus, we see the way in which God is sustaining the world. Without the word of God made most clear to us in Christ, the entire world would crumble and fall apart. And so as you look out at the universe and you think to yourself, all of this is crumbling and falling apart, here's what you can take confidence in. As long as Christ is around, it's not. It all will hold together because Christ holds together and he sustains the universe by the word of his power. It is in him that we live and we move and we have our being. So, so, so far we've been talking a lot about who this son of God is and who he has been since before the Lord of all creation. And then he moves and he shifts his thinking. No longer is he talking about what God the son has been doing for eternity. He now begins to talk about what God the son is doing right now, has done 
right now. Verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for our sin, God speaks to us through the work of the Son in the purification of sins. So let me, let me bring that down to the ground level, maybe make it plain. All of us are in process, right? Like nobody walked in here this morning and said to themselves, I am the holiest one here. Therefore, I should be preaching this sermon. And if you did, that's just self-righteousness, so you're welcome. Um, None of us walked in, like all of us are in process. We're all growing and learning and working and, and being taught and being shaped and being formed and being molded more and more into the image of Christ. Every single one of us is in process. And God speaks to that process in the work of Jesus on the cross who takes on the sins of the world. You see, in the cross, Jesus is doing the work of making those of us who are dead alive. In the cross, Jesus is making it possible for God to forgive us of our trespasses. In the cross, Jesus is canceling the record of debt that stands against us. In the cross, he is setting aside your sin by nailing it to the cross. Here's what this means. You are in process, but notice how this sentence works. After making purification for sins. What is the verb tense there? It's past. This is not a current process. It's a finished process, right? After making purification for sins. So what this means is that this is already true of you. In your process, you can take confidence in the fact that God is speaking to those sins in Christ's purification of them. And it doesn't stop there. It tells us that after making purification, he sat down. This is great. In our sedentary culture, we lose the meaning of this. We're sitting down most of the time when we're doing our work. What this passage is trying to tell us is something very, very clear in ancient Jewish culture. In ancient Jewish culture, when you sat down, that meant the job's done. The work's finished. The <laughs> when Jesus sits down, he's saying his work is done. The purifications for your sin is finished, which means this, your sanctification is secure. You are stepping into the process of growing in Christ-likeness, knowing that the work is done and it is finished and that he will purify you. In your process, you can take confidence, confidence, knowing that in Jesus, God's most prominent word pronounced over your life is found. When we don't know where God is, we need to look to Jesus. And so I know I'm over time, but if you'll, if you'll stick with me for a moment, I'd like to reintroduce us to Jesus really quickly. Maybe you're in here this morning and you say, Austin, all of that is great, but I'm kind of doubting right now. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing. How does Jesus speak to me in my doubt? Matthew 28 Jesus has risen from the dead and, and he comes before his disciples and, and the text tells us this. The text tells us that they worshipped but some doubted. 
Now, these are the disciples who are literally standing in front, face to face, with the resurrected Christ. Maybe you're thinking, look, Jesus, if you could just come and reveal yourself to me right now, like in the flesh, then maybe I'd be able to believe in you. But (laughs) that's what Jesus did to these guys. And some of them doubted. And this is where, this is what blows our minds here. The text does not tell us that he runs the opposite direction. The text tells us that he moves towards them. And he moves towards them. If this is you today, where you have come in here wondering what to believe, all you've seen from Christianity has left you wanting, you've been through all the motions, you've said all the prayers, and yet you haven't felt the presence of God, you've been walking in unknown, not seeing Jesus, you've got questions and there is no answer that I could give to you today that would be more important than for you to know that in your doubt, Jesus is not running in the opposite direction, he is moving towards you. He desires to reveal himself to you. He desires to invite you into his story. Here's what's amazing about that Matthew 28 passage. They worshiped and some doubted. And then he gives the great commission. I don't know about you. I'm not trusting my like, mission for life with somebody who's not sure if they can do it or not. Or is not sure if they really trust me as a person. That's not what Jesus does. He invites them into his story, into his mission, into his life. That's what Jesus desires to do for you today, my friend. Maybe you're in here this morning and you say, Austin, I am not doubting. I believe in Jesus. I am confident of who he is. But you need to know that I am struggling to defeat sin in my life. I am am just ravaged by sin. I am constantly dealing with the pain that habitual sin is causing in my life. How does Jesus speak to me? Well, I'm so glad you asked. In John chapter 8, we see a story where a woman who is caught in adultery is brought before the Lord. She is caught in adultery. She's brought before Jesus. And there are men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, and they are ready to condemn this woman and to stone her to death. And Jesus kneels down on the ground. He writes into the dirt, gets his hands dirty. And beginning from the oldest to the youngest, everyone drops their stone and walks away. And some of us maybe have a stoic view of Jesus. We'd think that Jesus stood off in the corner in his three-piece suit and said, woman, get up. But that's not what Jesus does at all. Jesus draws near to her. He lifts up her face and he looks at her and he says, does no one here condemn you? neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He stands on behalf of the woman. He delivers her. The one with the right to condemn her walks in no condemnation for her. He looks at her and he loves her and he invites her into a life of freedom. And if this is you today where your sin is resulted in condemnation being heaped upon you and you are sitting under the sound of my voice wondering if you could ever be forgiven. Jesus looks at you and he loves you. (laughs) He loves you and he says there is no condemnation for you. You do not have to live in that any longer. You have been offered a way out by the God who stands in between you and condemnation. Look to Jesus and see freedom. Look to Jesus and see the beauty of grace. See a God who is not throwing stones at you, but is instead stepping in the way of those stones and taking the punishment for your sins. 
Look to Jesus. He is not done with you, friend. He delights to restore your dignity and your value and your worth back to you. And then he gives you this invitation, go and sin no more, not because, not because your sin is only forgiven as long as you get it together, but because Jesus (laughs) says that sin does not have the final word over your life. That's not your identity, my friend. Go and sin no more, not because Jesus' forgiveness is conditional upon your showing up and performing, but because Jesus' word over your life is one of no condemnation. And he says that sin is no longer who you are. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're saying, Austin, (laughs) I'm not struggling with habitual sin. I'm not doubting that Jesus existed. But I am suffering. Where is God in that? In John 11, we we see a story. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died, and Lazarus' sister Mary comes before Jesus, and she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And many of us get uncomfortable with an accusation like that. We feel like we would need to correct her theology, but that's not what God does. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't correct her theology. Instead, the text says that he is deeply moved. In other texts, we're informed that not only was he moved, but he was moved to the point of weeping. If Jesus is God revealed to us, then how he responds in the face of death is exactly how God responds. God moves near to his people when they are suffering. God moves near to you if you are suffering. And while suffering is the place where we find it the most difficult to see the goodness of God, suffering is also the place where God's goodness is most clearly revealed because it's in Jesus' suffering that God makes a way for us to have hope forevermore. Jesus is the answer to the question, is God good in suffering? God does not answer our philosophical questions by giving us a philosophical answer. He answers them by getting his hands dirty. He answers the questions of suffering by entering the world as the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, so that we can have a high priest who pays the ultimate cosmic price for sin. You see, the ultimate cause of evil and suffering in the world is sin, and he pays the price for that. He takes it head on. And if you're in here this morning and you are in a season of suffering, God speaks to you by his son who subjected himself to death on a cross so that you might have a savior who sympathizes with your weaknesses so that you can know even in this while the body is dying, while you are feeling the weight of a broken world, death is not defeat for you, my friend. For those of us who die with him will also be raised with him. And this light and momentary affliction is producing for us a weight of glory far beyond what we can comprehend. My friends, God speaks even when we are not hearing him. He speaks. All we need is to look to Jesus, to see Jesus, 
and see a clear and present word on display for us. And so what does Jesus say to you today? He says to come. All who are weary and need rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. He speaks. And he desires to invite you into his life, into his story. Let's pray.